Well, we will continue our study this week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Um, full disclaimer this week, this was a really difficult passage for me to study. Um, it's very personal for me as, a, as an individual. Um, and so it's hard not to, as you know, reading scripture and hitting verses and, and, and stories that uh, just really deal personally with your own life. Um, and, and really, hopefully, this study in marriage has done this for all of us. It's helped us value marriage. It has helped us appreciate uh, the gifts that God has given us. Um, and most of you guys know my story as a young man or as a young child. Uh, eight months old, my mother walked out uh, on my dad and me. And, um, and so, as I grew up as a young boy, thinking about that situation, I reflected beyond myself when I got to a certain maturity and just began to contemplate the hurt that my dad had to feel um, when she left. And, uh, man, it just, it really, it was really challenging this week, and, and like I said, it was very encouraging to, to think about the way in which God blessed me and he blessed my dad. My dad was a believer when that happened, and so I know that through that situation he was resting on his faith in Christ, um, finding hope in him. He was very much anchored to his love, and it just reminded me as we begin how much God loves his people and how much he loves us in the certain situations that we face. He loves us in general, but he particularly loves us especially um, as we face different scenarios in our lives. And we feel and understand that love and grace as we go through unbearable situations because of sin in this world. Some of those situations include abandonment and adultery and abuse and other sins that we've been studying that destroy marriages. And that, that treachery that we see in the world today, maybe you have experienced in your own life, that is not just an attack on you as a person. Ultimately, that is an attack on God. And as creator and the designer of marriage, when we abandon those whom God has brought to us, whom we have joined together in marriage, um, it is grievous to Him as the one who designed such a thing. And we understand that sin um, does this in our lives. And so Paul and the writers of the, of the Bible, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, deal with these matters so that we can properly um, learn and, and practice such things in a biblical way. And so if you are someone who has experienced very personally um, a divorce in your family or you have particularly dealt with abandonment that led to divorce, then may uh, the Word of God today comfort you as it comforted me this week. By God's grace, my, my dad got to experience uh, something greater than the day that my mom left um, because he brought my stepmom into his life when I was three. And my mom, Cheryl, um, who I call my mother, um, was the wife that my dad needed and the mother that I needed. And uh, I feel immeasurably gifted by that 
that he brought uh, her into my life and blessed both of us in such uh, immeasurable ways. And I hope that you will be encouraged from our study today to know and understand that God is walking through us, walking with us through these great storms that we face. And He is blessing us and He is caring for us. And I was reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That verse is not just soteriological. It doesn't just affirm the fact that you, uh, when believing in Christ, will be saved and you are saved but that you can experience that saving love of God as you cling to Him, knowing that He has not just saved you, but that He is your Lord and your King and your Comforter and your strength in dark moments. And He gives us by the Spirit of God, the Word of God to comfort us and to guide us. And so I pray that, as I said, we would be comforted from these passages 1 Corinthians chapter 7 through 12 through 16. Pastor Stewart read these earlier today. And as, as we are reminded from last week, Paul is dealing in verses 10 and 11 with couples who are married that follow Christ. They are believers in Jesus. And he is challenging them and to be reminded that the permanence of marriage and the faithfulness of marriage is key for people who cling to Christ. It is the very reflection of God and what He has done through His Son and His bride, the church. And therefore, we must be reminded as believers that we should value the faithfulness and permanence of marriage because of the reflection of the glory of God in what we accomplish in marriage. Biblical marriage should therefore not allow divorce to even be an option for us as believers. We should consider it a, a bad word to even be spoken or even to think about. You should not joke about divorce. You should not uh, even hint of or imply divorce in such a conflict with your spouse because in those very things you are speaking unholy desires that don't please God. If you speak such things, it's clearly a desire in your own heart. And it goes against the design of what God has created for you as a believer and your spouse as a believer in Jesus. Instead, we learned last week that peace and reconciliation are the goals of followers of Jesus in the marital bond. Why? Because reconciliation is the very thing in which we experienced in Christ and therefore we should dole out or dispense toward others, including and most importantly, the spouse that God has given us. In the Pelegra small group this week on Wednesday night, we talked about 
the, the aspect of how loving our neighbor as ourselves applies most specifically to our wives or our husbands. We are to love them. They are the closest neighbors we can enjoy and be gifted with. And therefore, we are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor. And in doing so, we seek peace and we seek reconciliation. And now Paul will deal with a second set of people in verses 12 through 16 those who we would call imbalanced marriages or mixed marriages as people have often referred to them. Mixed marriages are marriages where one spouse is a follower of Jesus Christ and the other spouse is not. And so this is kind of part two of our, our study on marital faithfulness to the glory of God. And so Paul is dealing with this situation in a pagan culture so that he can answer the question, what does a person do if they come to faith in Jesus Christ and the spouse remains in their lost condition? And as we talked about that culturally, that, that is one application for Paul's uh, words to us today. You can imagine in a uh, pagan society, you have two unbelieving people that are married. One person comes to know Christ, the other person chooses to remain lost and therefore reject Christ, and therefore you have now a mixed marriage. And Paul wants them to understand as he uh, teaches them. Now, in verse 12, we addressed this last week. He says, to the rest, I say, not the Lord. And what he means by that is is he's not going out on a wing or on a limb here with his own wisdom outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 10, he talks about the Lord giving instruction, not Paul. In verse 12, he says, now this I say, not the Lord. And I told you last week the reason that he speaks that way is because Paul is addressing an issue by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus never addressed. Does it make any, does it, does not make that any less effective? It is just as pertinent and applicable and necessary for us to obey and follow. And so the, the command by Paul for believers in this passage is a necessary command for us to consider. It's not a suggestion. It's not Paul's words versus the the rest of the Bible. It's also not, or I would say it's a misapplication, if we read Paul's word and go, oh, well, he's condoning mixed marriages. I mean, he's teaching us about mixed marriages, so therefore, young people you might think, well, then it's okay for me to date whoever I want to. I'll just pray that in, in, a, in a, a relationship that might lead to marriage, if they're an unbeliever, then the Lord might save them one day. He's not condoning mixed marriages. He's dealing with the problem at hand. And as I shared with you last week and pleaded with uh, our, our singles and our young people here today, God does not want you to be with unbelievers. He doesn't want you to, 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 to date them and consider them. He wants you to understand that you are unequally yoked with them. That you have nothing to do with what they live or how they live and the worldview that they uh, uh, make decisions by. 
It was a, a theme throughout all of Scripture that, that the, the, the people of God were never to intermarry with those that were opposed to God and His commands and His way. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. God commands Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. You shall not take your daughters for their sons. He's speaking to the Jews about the Canaanites, the very people that occupied the land which Israel would be given by God. And naturally, they would go in and the men would see beautiful women and the women would see handsome men and they would go, oh wow, this seems like a great opportunity. The land is flourishing and blessed with with handsome people, with beautiful people. And God says, you need, to, you need to put that lust aside. You're not to be with them. You're not to intermarry with them. Why? Verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will quickly destroy you. And that is the message of Israel's disobedience. That literally the reason in which they were conquered by Assyria and they were conquered by Babylon is because they invited paganism into their families and into their lives and it led them to idolatry and false worship and therefore God had to send foreign enemies to conquer them and enslave them to show them that they had disobeyed. All because of mixed marriages. One of the great sins of God's people. To not take these commands seriously. So in the New Testament, Paul says the very same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Which, by the way, applies beyond just in marriage, church. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be bound to them. Do not be united with them in intimacy. Why? Because he says... What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Bilal? Or, or what, uh, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, he says, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. He cannot be any more clear. We have no business... We have no business being united with someone who believes completely opposite that we do in every aspect of life. In our ethics and our moralities and our our very belief about God and, and, and what He has come to do. We are diverging in completely different directions in such a way. And so Paul is not advocating to marry unbelievers in order to, quote, save them or be a gospel light to them. But he is instead addressing an issue that was clearly rising to the surface because sin allows and drives people to divorce and abandonment. And because of that, and I'm particularly in in regards to marriages where a believer became, a person became a believer while their spouse did not, he had to address, address such an issue. But there's another issue. 
There's also the issue of when we marry someone that we think is a believer and they really are not. In 2008, Amy and I became very close with a couple and their family who joined our previous church. This couple really seemed to love the Lord. They were a big influence on our family in our early years of homeschooling. We would have dinner together. I was the youth pastor of their children. We had a strong relationship. And then we found out that the husband had been cheating church members out of services that he had promised to perform for them. He had, they had paid him so much money that he never completed the work that he had promised that it led to felony charges against these people, or against him. And as one of the pastors, and as one of his friends, I went to confront him, and he refused to talk to me about it. He rejected any counsel or wisdom from God. He fled the city, got arrested, eventually moved his family away. Now the point I tell you that, in telling you all that, is that my wife and I were deceived in thinking that this man loved Christ. We were fooled. And we were dumbfounded by it. And I say that because it can happen to any of us. We have all had these experiences where we think we know certain peoples and we think we understand their walk with Christ and their love for Christ only to come to find out that when the pressures of the world come about them, they fall away because they never truly belong to Him. And this happens in marriages all the time. It does. And so how can we, whether as a couple who one becomes a believer and the other doesn't, or as a couple who has come to discover that our spouses are not truly walking with Christ, that are not truly followers of Him, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has some truths for us today that I hope will encourage us. Paul's instruction for us, is that marriage with unbelievers should still reflect Christ and the gospel through these these truths today. Number one, the message doesn't change. The message is still about permanence. The message is still about permanence. Just as much as we should focus on faithfulness and permanence in a relationship with a believer, so we should also focus on permanence in a relationship with an unbeliever. This is what he says in verses 12 and 13. If a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, he's speaking to a Christian man who has an unbelieving wife, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send him away. The message from Paul seems to be that in the same as verses 10 and 11, that divorce should not be our option. Believers in Christ should not seek divorce. Paul is focusing his attention on the permanency of marriage. He's teaching us that it's not a holy act for Christians to pursue divorce with their unbelieving spouse as a general command. By refraining from seeking divorce, believers are setting the standard and proclaiming the truth of God's great design that marriage is about faithfulness and permanence. Even if the circumstances are less than ideal. Even if it's less than what we expected. 
Even if things didn't tend to turn out the way that we had hoped. In a 2019 study on divorce at the University of Denver, note with me the top reasons that people get divorced today. Starting with 10, going down to the most common. Religious difference, number 10. Lack of support from family and, and um, friends. Health problems. Number seven, domestic violence. Number six, substance abuse. Number five, financial problems. Number four, getting married too young. Number three, interpersonal conflict. Number two, infidelity. And number one, just a lack of commitment. Number one being the greatest percentage or the greatest reason why people got divorced. Now notice that all these issues, all of these issues can be reconcilable even with unbelievers. These are tense struggles without a doubt, but there's no reason for marriages to end and families to be disrupted because of these problems. They're conflicts that can be resolved. But in the case with believers and even now unbelievers, we see that these are just the very common reasons why people give up on marriages. And this is just as common in the church. We allow these conflicts to go unreconciled. We allow these conflicts to become bitterness and resentment and pain that becomes unbearable. And even as Christians, we see people, uh, we seek out divorce. And that should not be so. Paul gives two conditional statements in verses 12 and 13 and in verse 15. If, he says, the unbeliever consents to live with you, then remain. And then in verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. These are conditions that Paul is addressing with husbands and wives because he wants them to see the importance of remaining married, of following through with the permanency and the faithfulness that God desires because as we looked at last week, His faithfulness reflects upon our faithfulness. It radiates to us as we trust in Him so we should also be faithful. And the truth of the matter is, is that by His grace, although there are opposing worldviews in such a mixed marriage, greater strains, heavier conflict at times, it doesn't mean that the commitment uh, has to be eliminated from both parties. There can still be faithfulness, there can still be fidelity, and there can still be love between a husband and a wife, one who believes and one who doesn't. But the condition must be that the unbelieving spouse is still committed to the relationship. In this situation, the follower of Christ carries on that that marriage reflecting God's glory with someone who, who doesn't want to leave, who wants to remain committed, and therefore the marriage continues by God's grace. So the first condition... If the believer consents to live with them, then there should be permanence without the believer seeking divorce. 
So we talk about permanence. Secondly, we talk about mission. Mission. Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Paul uses the word sanctified here, which oftentimes is rendered made holy or set apart. Paul cannot mean in this passage that the unbelieving husband is uh, saved and the application of God's redemptive work through Christ is applied to the husband because of the wife's faithfulness and belief in Christ. That's not what he means. He's not saying that the work of Christ for one spouse is applied to the other spouse and the children. It's not what it means. Instead, we can see throughout Scripture that being sanctified or being set apart for holy use can also be applied to objects that are consecrated for holy use. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 19. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and He's talking to them about their hypocrisy. But look at what He says in Matthew 23, verses 16. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Emphasis on sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, he says, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? What Jesus is referring to here is that the gold itself was sanctified by the use of that gold thing because it was in a holy place in the temple. The gold itself was not holy. It was a material object. The wood underneath that was overlaid with the gold was not holy. But because God used it for holy things, it was consecrated as holy. Therefore, these earthly materials being used for God's holy use were not holy in themselves, but therefore used for His glory as material objects. And in the same way, the unbelieving husband is sanctified because he is set apart for holy use even as an unbeliever. You ask how, pastor? Well, because he's set apart to still care for God's people, to still protect his wife, to still be a servant of God, even though he is not a servant to his lordship. For example... This is no different than an unbelieving law enforcement officer doing the will of God by deeming justice in the world and completely rejecting the name of Christ. He is still God's servant, set apart to do holy things by bringing justice in the world, whether he knows it or not. Therefore, a husband that is an unbeliever or a wife who is an unbeliever is sanctified because she is set apart to still do holy things in that marriage even if they are unaware of doing such holy things because God is using them for His glory. 
It's the holy influence also of that believing spouse where the influence of Christ dwelling within that home that, that brings about blessing to the marriage and consecrates the home that even the unbelieving spouse carries out holy duties by the Lord and receives the blessing of those gifts from God. So being sanctified doesn't mean that the man or the woman himself are holy and right, in a right standing with the Lord but they can be recipients and they can be servants of His grace and can have a profound impact on God's kingdom in the same way that God used pagan armies and pagan nations to bring about His purposes in the world. And the believing spouse, you can have profound impacts on an unbelieving spouse as they see your selfish or their, your selfless care and devotion to the Lord, to raising your children, and to your church. So therefore, the mission for the believing spouse is to always love Christ above all things, to reflect Christ, and to point your unbelieving spouse and your children to Christ and His redeeming work and power throughout your time left on this earth or in that marriage. You must speak about the consequences of sin, the only hope that a person may have in Christ, their need for repentance and faith. This is your mission. Which would include, as Paul includes, the very aspect of the holiness and of the environment in which your children are dwelling in as they see the value of marriage and the permanency of marriage and the holiness that you exude in your relationship, therefore they too will be blessed. So the second truth that Paul teaches us about marriage in a mixed marriage is not only permanence but mission. Thirdly, there's peace. The third truth about biblical marriage that must be communicated to an unbelieving spouse in the world is that there should be peace. Paul writes in verse 15 that if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. There are scenarios where the unbelieving spouse no longer wants to be committed to the marriage with an unbeliever. Or excuse me, with a believer. And he or she divides herself or himself from that commitment to the marriage. And these people are the ones, these unbelievers are the ones who are seeking the divorce because they are not committed to, uh, to serve the, the interests of their wife and their family, but they are instead more committed to serve their own interests and reject the Lord and all that He has blessed them with. And as unbelievers... They suppress the truth that Jesus is their Lord. They suppress the truth that they, uh, and the vows that they had made before God and men that are still binding upon them, and they turn away. And again, as I said, Paul writes these things not to give promotion to divorce, but because of the sin of the world, abandonment is a reality in marriage. 
So what does Paul mean when he says, let the unbelieving spouse leave? It's clear. When an unbelieving spouse wants to separate and divide and reject the marriage vows, let them do it. It doesn't mean that you don't protest the abandonment as a treacherous act and a violation of the marriage bond. Letting them leave simply means that there's no further act that can be done outside of God's sovereignty. The believing spouse has, delayed, has displayed faithfulness and grace, and yet the unbelieving spouse can't handle such a holy life or home anymore. And so what does this mean practically? It means that a believing spouse, although saddened by the circumstances, shouldn't refuse to sign divorce papers, should come to grips with the reality that the marriage is now divided if initiated by the husband, and that the follower of Christ should be free and unhindered from guilt or shame. Now, there's some debate as to what Paul means in the next phrase, the brother or sister is not under bondage. Again, he says in verse 15, chapter 7, for the unbelieving, uh, excuse me, Yet if, there is, uh, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. What does he mean by under bondage? Well, the word typically means, bondage there means slave or enslaved. So your translations may say, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And it's helpful for us to look throughout Paul's writings as how he used these words. So I turn your attention to Romans chapter 7 verse 2. Where Paul writes that the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Paul uses the same word there in Romans chapter 7, verse 2. He also uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Both this passage, verse 39, and Romans chapter 7 is dealing with widows. In verse 39 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, a wife is not bound, or a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Here Paul is saying that death breaks the bond and the duty of a marriage. This would mean that the spouse was free to remarry because she is no longer bound to that marriage covenant. This, of course, These two verses is in relationship to widows, as I said. But Paul uses the same word in verse 15 of chapter 7 in relationship to abandonment. Saying again that she is not bound. That she is no longer enslaved to the duty or the responsibility of the marriage. This is the finality of such a relationship Because the unbelieving spouse has abandoned such a commitment to the Lord. Letting the husband or wife leave, therefore, is affirming that the marriage has dissolved and you are there free 
to accept the reality of that divorce and, I would say, remarry. There is debate about whether remarriage is permissible here. I would say that it is. You say, well, what about chapter 7, verses 10 through 11? Look back there. But to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Well, doesn't that there say that if there's a divorce, that the wife or the husband should remain unmarried? Yes, if there is a divorce between two believing people. Why? Because the whole purpose of two believers should never end in divorce. Because the whole point is that it should end in reconciliation. But when an unbeliever walks away, and God has deemed it done and complete and final, when there is no opportunity for reconciliation, although peace, I would believe and I interpret it as you are free to remarry. So we talk about permanence. We talk about mission. We talk about peace. We talk about peace because God has called us not to live in such a way where we are in conflict with these people that have left us. We are abandoned by them. We are hurt by them. It is a tragic event in in the life of a believer, and yet we understand the conflict that we have had with God Almighty where we were His enemies, and yet He has poured His grace upon us, that He has restored us to a right relationship. Therefore, the peace that we have experienced is the vessel in which we dispense peace to those who hurt us. Getting back to my relationship with my family, I displayed or I witnessed peace in immeasurable ways in this situation. All throughout my childhood, the relationship between my mom and my stepdad and my biological mom was absolute peace. It didn't matter how much destruction was brought upon my life from an ungodly environment in which I had to go and live on weekends, where I was uh, inundated and influenced by worldly culture and sinful uh, things that, that, that I got to do as a young man, living however I wanted to live in an ungodly environment, and then having to go back into a Christian environment under the, the, the morals and the ethics of a Christian life, And no matter how much turmoil that caused in my life, my mom and dad, my mom and step, or my my dad and my stepmom always were gracious to my biological mother. Always reflecting peace, not anger, but grace. And this is what Paul is calling us to do in these situations: is to be people of peace. And finally, the fourth and final aspect or truth for these mixed marriages is that we must recognize the sovereignty of God. Verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? 
Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? These are interesting questions because you could look at these questions as either positive or negative. You could ask the question in the situation with the believing spouse and the unbelieving spouse as if Paul is is suggesting the idea of the unknown effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon that person. In a positive light, if we're looking at this question in a positive light, you might be asking, uh, or Paul might be asking, well, how do you, not, how do you know, uh, a spouse, whether you'll be the very vessel by which your, your unbelieving spouse comes to know Jesus? How do you know? And in a positive light, this would propel you forward to be faithful in that relationship as long as that person is committed to the marriage so that you might be the very connection to the gospel the very connection to God's Word, the very demonstra- uh, demonstration of the Holy Spirit to the person that defies Christ and seeks to rule His own kingdom. We know that the Lord can use a spouse for God's glory to point her husband or for her to point his, her, or her, his wife to the Lord by God's unconditional grace. And therefore, the person reading this question will trust and believe in God's sole purpose for bringing people to salvation and they will plead desperately that God would do such a thing. That's looking at Paul's question in the positive. But you know what? Paul could also be meaning this in the negative. Like for example, the other side of the coin where the unbelieving spouse leaves. And Paul's trying to preclude a concern, well, if I finalize the divorce, if I concede, then this person may not ever come to know the gospel. And therefore, Paul might also be directing the answer to this question in a negative light, therefore freeing the believer of any guilt or responsibility to save their spouse. In other words, how do you know you're going to save them? How do you really know that they're coming, going to come to know the Christ? And by grammatical placement alone, it seems to be Paul saying this very thing in the negative. In other words, giving the wife or husband responsibility, or excuse me, freedom to accept the reality of the division or the divorce because of abandonment and therefore move on. Because in the end, whichever way we interpret Paul's question, we conclude that it's God's sovereign will that a person be saved. In the end, God is going to save His people, calling them from blindness, giving them spiritual sight by His own purpose and plan, and we can't know for sure. And so all we can do is, 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 uh, is be faithful to point a person to Christ whether we're married to them or not. We can point them to Christ, teaching them the gospel, praying and hoping that God would open their mind to believe the very truth of those things and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. A few weeks ago, we learned this passage. But as many as received Him, to Him He gave the right to become children of God, 
Even to those who believe in His name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You might change that last line to, not of the will of the believing husband or wife, but of God. If your spouse is an unbeliever, or you suspect that they are, you and I must place our faith in the sovereign rule of God who draws His people to Himself 100% of the time. He never misplaces one of His sheep. He never forgets to call certain persons to salvation. We must trust that in His grace, He will bring people to salvation according to His plan. Regardless or John MacArthur says, regardless of a Christian, Christian's motives and hopes, the likelihood of leading the partner to Christ is minimal. He doesn't say hopeless, he says minimal. If the partner stays in the marriage unwilling or reluctantly, the likelihood is even less, and the disruption of family peace is assured. He says evangelism is not a cause enough to maintain a marriage, especially if the unbelieving partner wants to leave. The believer should let God follow that spouse's soul with the message of salvation and use whomever he will to take up the call of faith. And so friend, our hope and our prayer is that God would save those in our lives Spouses, children, friends, family, that we would trust in His sovereignty to do that, that we would be reflectors and demonstrators of peace and reconciliation, that we would not go against what God's Word says, that we would not go against His good design, but that we would hope in His power and His strength to bring an end to conflict and to bring reconciliation. We must trust that He is our refuge when we are believing spouses, that He has called us to mission to radiate the gospel. But in the end, we trust that He will bring about the fruit and the results. Christ has shown us that no matter who might abandon love and commitment, He will forever be the one who will be our groom. He will forever be the one who brings us the satisfaction and the hope that we need in dark days of sinfulness and despair. And so as we focus on the truths of marriage, let us point first and foremost to Christ, who is our hope, who is our strength, who gets us through difficult days. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You for instruction as, such as these, Lord. Instructions that, that draw us to the hope of Christ. That teach us to persevere through dark moments of despair in our families. God, I pray that You would bring comfort to so many of us that have been touched by divorce. That your very words reflecting permanence in marriage may be an encouragement and a motivation for us to persevere in conflict. 
seek reconciliation and peace so that we might reflect Christ in all His